You, you know when you have to have like semi-more mature talks about something? You, you get to a topic and like history and you, kids in first grade, they talk history. And like, oh, that's cute that they teach you that's history. And then you get to a later day and you're like, let, let me tell you the slightly more mature version of that. Or those moments you have with your kids where they know a version of you and then they get to high school and you're like, let me tell you a little bit more about your dad. <laughs> and then the conversations I haven't yet had with my children of let me tell you a little more. Amen. Well, we need to have those on scripture too. Amen. Or we're being dishonest. Amen. And if you're brand new to scripture, let me tell you, I wish I had these conversations up front. I wish I had them right away so it doesn't disqualify you. And none of this is us saying that Scripture is not God-breathed. It's not, we're not changing what Scripture is. We're just going to be honest about it this morning in a different way, okay? So on your device or in your Bible, I want you all to open up to a text with me today. Even if you just type in John 8 in your search engine and pull it up, uh, I want us all to look at this one a little bit together. And as you do that, we're going to be in John 8. I want to tell you a little bit about Scripture and how this one came together. So I don't think we thought, think about it much, but at the time, like, Jesus was before the printing press. So Scripture was hand-copied, right? There was, there was a letter, and then to make a copy of the letter, you had to hand-copy it. The Gospels, this, this one in particular is John. John wrote it with his hand. And then to have a second copy of it, someone had to write it with their hand. And it wasn't in English. I don't think we always realize that. They didn't, they didn't write it in English. And that's part of why we have these different translations, is sometimes people would write it slightly different in Greek. And then the translation's a little different, and it, and it varies a little bit. And then you get a little bit like telephone, and Jamel preached about this a few weeks ago, you... you like things change a little bit, and it's, it's handwritten. Now, reality is the oldest copies of the Gospel of John do not have John 8. They don't. We just need to know that. That's just, we're in a mature conversation on Scripture. This Scripture is not in there. And scholars who are much smarter than me, when they look at this, they say it doesn't even read like John. It reads like Luke. If one of the gospel writers wrote it, they think it was probably Luke who wrote it. Because as you know, we all talk a little different. We all write a little different. And the writing is more in line with how Luke writes. And so maybe it actually belongs in Luke, not John. Scholars don't know where it fits chronologically. This is where they believe it fits chronologically and they placed it in the book of John because in the early manuscripts, the first ones that started recorded around the 4th century, well, it was in John, and they think this is chronologically where it happened. But there is a consensus among scholars that this event occurred. They have no reason to think that it didn't occur. There's just some fascinating reason it wasn't recorded for a while. But as they look at it, they're like, yes, it is in line with who Jesus was. We believe that this happened. And because it happens, we're going to look at it today. And we're going to get back to why some of those things might matter in a couple minutes. But we have to be honest about the text, right? And that's part of being honest about the text. Okay, let's start off here. John 8, verse 2. Early in the morning, Jesus came again to the temple. 
all the people came to him, and they sat down, and, and he taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the, in the act of adultery, and now in the law Moses commanded us to stone such woman. So what do you say? All right, let's make sure we get what's going on in this scene, and let's make sure we get everybody who's present, right? So Jesus is there. He goes to the temple. He is in what's called the outer courts. It's like the big gathering area of the temple. It's the area where you could have meetings, and you could like sit and talk with people and all of that, and he is there because he would sometimes teach in the outer courts, and he, it says that he is seated because someone who's teaching in that day sat, and people who listened stood. And so when you were about to teach, you would sit. That was like the signifier that I'm about to teach. And so a crowd has gathered on this day, and they're ready to listen to him, and he sits down, and at that moment, not before, but at that moment when all the attention is on Jesus, the, the scribes and the Pharisees walk in. Besides the scribes and the Pharisees, there would be Romans around. There'd be Romans up high, looking down on the courts to make sure that there's not any disruption happening, to make sure there's no uprising about to happen. They were guarding to make sure that peace was there. So there was a crowd gathered around Jesus, the Romans looking down, and the scribes and the Pharisees come in. A scribe is somebody who copies from one to another, but it's more than that. The scribe is also the person that more than anything else, their job was to interpret the law. Because they've spent their life meticulously copying from one to another, it, it is their job to interpret what that means. Because we all know that a law is really only as good as the interpretation of the law, right? This is what all arguments are about in our time right now. They, we can pass a law. The law doesn't mean anything until we agree on an interpretation. And so their job was to interpret the law. Then the Pharisees, they ensured the letter of the law was kept. They had great value in everyone upholding the law how they said, okay? I know this is a lot of details, but these are all the, the players there. Are we tracking so far? So in the morning, just when Jesus is about to teach, he sits down, the crowd is gathered, the Romans are watching, the scribes and the Pharisees walk in this woman who was caught in the act of adultery, Somewhere after breakfast, she's walked in. That's not when she was caught. She was caught the night before. And she was having adultery with somebody else. But the woman was brought out of that situation and held overnight. We don't know if she was in like a jail. We don't know if she was held in somebody's house. They don't tell us where she's held, but she was cat in the act of adultery, and she was held because overnight it didn't matter. What mattered was that morning. Now, let, let's be honest about this. If they thought this woman was a danger, they would have addressed it right then. If they were about this woman's reform, about her being corrected and changing her, her next days, they would have addressed it right then. If it was belief in this woman that she was something more than that act, they would have addressed it that night. But that wasn't the point. That's not unlike today. We're going to take a sidebar for a second. In August, our church has an opportunity to tell some young men that we believe that they are something more than what they've done. 
we have an opportunity. Jamel just told us about it. We have a broken system with really, really broken interpretations of the law. Law and punishment is out of control. If you don't believe it, let me send you a book, please. I'll buy it for you. Uh, Rethinking Incarceration is what it's called. A friend, Dominique Gilliard, wrote it. If you want a copy, I will get you a copy. You read that. We'll talk about it after. We have a broken system right now that is telling young men and young women, particularly young men and young women of color, that they do not have value. They're held in places to be just a pawn in a game that's about interpretation of law. And we are not going to stand silent on this. Our first chance to have a voice is early August. We'll make sure that you have all the information, but I guarantee you, Jamel, his family, me and my family, we're going to be there. There's going to be other people there to tell these young men, we believe that you are exactly who God says you are. And we'll believe that for you until you do. All right. Very similar in this text, this, this woman is just held there overnight. I, I don't even know, Scripture doesn't say what she felt. I can only imagine what she felt. If it was really about the law, the man would have been there too, right? Yeah. Actually, the law in Deuteronomy 17 says that the man is to be there. Right. And, an exact interpretation of the law says you both got caught. Well, we've got to deal with both of you. But it's not about the exact interpretation of the law. That's not the point here. So she's held in some terrifying spot. We don't know what it is. I just imagine, this is me imagining, that the emotions are terrifying. Because she doesn't know what she's walking into. But the next morning, not first thing in the morning, not as soon as Jesus woke, they went because it was so important to know what to do with this woman. But just when it caused a big enough scene... After breakfast, when everybody was settled, when he had taken a seat, they parade this woman as an object in front of Jesus. A subhuman treatment. And in verse 6, we keep going. They said this to test him, that they may have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger, on the ground. They weren't even pretending. It's not about the woman. It's about Jesus. We want to catch him. So we'll use her as bait to catch him. And Jesus, my Messiah, your Messiah, he just starts writing in the sand. Now, scholars have argued about what he wrote. I don't have a clue. I would love to sit over coffee with you and guess for a while because I've got some wild guesses that would be really fun. We've got some conspiracy theories about what he wrote. I want to tell you that it is very significant that Jesus bent down and wrote in the sand, and here's why. It's a Sabbath day. It's a day after a festival. Most likely it is a day after a festival. It is a Sabbath because that's when you gather and you sit and you teach. And Jesus is showing that he knows the law much more than they do because the only way that you can write on the Sabbath is in the sand. So they're saying, we want to test if you know the law. And he bends down, and he writes in the sand. If he did it on paper, he's breaking the Sabbath. But he writes on sand as a way of saying, I not only know the written law, but I know the interpretation of the law. You're not getting one over me. He knows what's going on here. And he just keeps drawing. He just keeps writing. It says in the very next verse, uh, as they continue to ask him, They just keep bombarding him. What should we do? What should we do? And he just keeps writing. 
well, what are we going to do? What are we going to do, Jesus? And he keeps writing and writing. Do you know the power that it would be that the one person who has authority in the room stoops down and writes in the sand? Every now and then people act like Jesus is his buddy, Jesus weak, Jesus kind of thing. No, to have that kind of authority and be like, just wait a minute, I want to draw me a picture. And they keep harassing him and he knows that's what it's about, but he's just drawing in the sand. I hear you, Anna. See, he knows the law. He knows in Deuteronomy 17, it says that a man and a woman should be stoned and the first stone should be thrown by the witness of who saw the act. And yet he, he, he says what would be even better in verse 8. He says, and once more he bent down and wrote on the ground, uh, I'm sorry, verse 7, as they stood to ask him, he stood and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to th- throw a stone at her. Amen. This is significant. The law says, let the one who was a witness throw the first stone. The sad thing about that is anybody could throw the second, third, and fourth. That's pretty sad culture there. We're not that unlike that one. We just pray somebody gets egged on to throw the first one, whether that be Facebook or real life. And we'll throw the second, third, fourth until our fingers ache from typing. But he says it is better. Let me interpret the law there, scribes. Let he who is without sin throw that first stone. And as soon as he says it, he he stoops back down and goes back to his work. He goes back to drawing, keeping the law. Now the uh, the at the time, in this culture, seniority held status and authority. This is one of the ways that we're broken, guys. We, we think whichever youngest star is rising the fastest should have the biggest voice. And they saw whoever has lived through the most and followed after God the most, that's a voice you listen to. And so the oldest had authority and, and status in this culture, and they, the most powerful, were the first to leave. He says, let he who without sin throw the first stone. And then the text says that the oldest left first. Because you can lie to yourself a little bit, but you can't lie to yourself on that one. And as they left, the authority and the power left. And the youthful, exuberant ones, they, they eventually left too. And all of those who were accusing this woman left. Well, I imagine the Roman eyes are still on the scene, because that's quite the scene. We don't know about the crowd. They might have just dispersed too, because like, it seems like everything's just changed. What we know is that the woman was still there, the most terrifying day of her life, and Jesus was still bent over writing in the sand. So the scene turns to just Jesus and this woman. And in verse 10, Jesus stood up I imagine he looked at her. The text doesn't say it, but I imagine he made eye contact there and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Interpretation of the law matters, right? Interpretation of the text matters. I've heard this taught where he's like, woman? That's not how he said it. In Greek, it's not like, woman? 
It's not that. It matters how we read it. It really does. Because if he's like that, he's not that different than the one with the stone in his hand. He uses this respectful name for her woman. He doesn't belittle her. He doesn't treat her poorly. This is me reading in. I'm sure he looked her in the eyes. And then we know from the text that he said, woman, who condemns you? Now, we got to talk about this for a second because it matters. Uh, Jesus, Jesus is using court language here. We wouldn't know this, but it's court language. He says, who officially is bringing charges against you? That's what it is. The condemn you is not like some just, we're talking over coffee. He's like, hey, who officially is bringing charges against you, my dear woman? Guilt isn't talked about. Actually, scholars believe guilt is assumed. It's assumed that she was in the act of adultery. He's not doubting that. He's not even asking, like, are you sorry? Have, have you reformed yourself? Have, argue with me that you're different. Prove to me that you're different. None of that is there. The scholars show that she was caught in the act of adultery. That's the one thing the scribes and the Pharisees weren't wrong about. She was caught. And Jesus knew it. Jesus isn't dumb. He isn't like, oh, shucks, she would never do that. That's not it. And that matters for us. It really matters. She is caught in the act of adultery. And then Jesus, our Messiah, stands next to her and says, hey, if you're without sin, you throw the stone. And then when no one can throw it, he says, who officially brings charges against you? That's the question that he has. Last night isn't spoken of. Before we finish, let's go back to where we started. John 8 isn't recorded. For some reason, people aren't writing it. They're writing John 7, and they're writing the second half of John 8. Why? We don't know exactly why, but we have some clues. In the second through the fourth century, this passage was not read aloud. People had it, but they would not read it aloud. And the reason they would not read it aloud, they didn't hide why they didn't. They would not read it aloud because they did not want to encourage adultery. If we read this aloud, we are going to encourage adultery, so we will just skip it. And if I'm paying as a male in power, if I'm paying for a version of the Scriptures to be sent, then just skip over that story, please. And the scribes just skipped over that story, please. We think that's like a joke, but our founding fathers cut things all out of Scripture, right? We know churches just bypass entire sections about justice or other things like that, just never speak of it. We haven't changed that much, and this is reality of 2nd through 4th century. They would not read this aloud. There's a Scandinavian scholar who said that the reason that this was not copied is husbands did not want their wives to get ideas that this was permissible. And because the husbands had the power, they said, listen there, priest. Listen there, pastor. Don't speak of this one. Give me a translation of John, but do not give me that dangerous chunk in John 8 because I do not want my woman to get an idea. <laughs> Kenneth Bailey, if you've never read his 
work on, on the parables or, or things like that. He's, he's a beautiful scholar. He wrote the conservative traditional family life at the time. The woman who violated the sexual code, they were killed by their family as a way of sustaining honor. And they don't want this counter message to confuse their wives and their daughters. And so mysteriously, for 400 years, this encounter with Jesus was not recorded in the text. And then there was enough evidence of it that many translations, some put it at the end, some put it on the side of our text. And I get it, you've got to make decisions. It's about interpretation. But people have seen, it is, enough, it is clear enough that this event happened, so it needs to be somewhere in Luke or John. This needs to be recorded somewhere, even though the church hasn't liked it. Now, what do we not like about it? That matters. Last night, I was talking to Nikki, and uh, she was talking about a conversation with her friend, and they were discussing grace, discussing some of the work that Nikki does in Ethiopia and discussing grace out of that context in their own lives and everything, and got to the idea of offensive grace. And they said that, Nikki was telling me last night, that if grace is not offensive, you might not know grace. If that grace doesn't make you like, what? No way. No way did he go that far. No way could it be like that. No way could it be for them. If it's not that, then it might not be the grace of Jesus Christ. If it doesn't offend somebody, it's probably watered down. And sadly, the grace that I have taught and the grace that I have learned is palatable grace. But that's a different thing. And palatable grace you find in church history, but you don't find in Scripture offensive grace we find in John 8 and we find a church that for hundreds of years said not so not in my house we say this is your house until we get to John 8 we will not let this be in my house but offensive grace the grace that you physically respond to that is too good to be true cannot be allowed we must stop it that offensive grace is what that woman met on that day it's the argument of scholarship When Bibles were copied, the grace and freedom of John 8 was so offensive that it wasn't shared. Why? Verse 10 and 11. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go. And from now on, sin no more. The one who could condemn you, church. The one who could condemn you, sister, brother. He doesn't. I know Jamel just talked about this a few weeks ago, but we can't look at this passage without looking at that. The one who could condemn you doesn't. Is that really Jesus? Yes, this is his message. We all know John 3.16, right? Do we remember that he actually said this? In John 3.16, we know it. If you've watched football, you know it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Then the Bible doesn't end at John 3.16. It actually goes to John 3.17 where he says, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Now here's the other thing that matters. It is the son saying that. I am sent not to condemn it. We love it when he says that theoretically, but when he practices it. In John 8, we're like, no, cut it out of the Bible. 
This church will not theoretically love things. We're going to practically roll up our sleeves and be who we're called to be. And this is part of it. This is part of our work. Now go sin no more. <laughs> Interpretation again, right? So I, I put up a clip on social media this week about Monsters, Inc. If you've seen that movie, there's that scene where Mike Wazowski, the crazy one-eyed got monster, comes up to the, the lady who's kind of like, I don't know what she is, but he comes up and she thinks he's shady. And she's like, watching, always watching. <laughs> You know what I'm talking about. <laughs> That's a lot of our picture of God. Go sin no more. Watching. Always watching. That's not what he said. He just said, my dear lady, who condemns you? Nobody. Then I don't either. Now go. And as a benediction, as my blessing... As my way forward, go and sin no more because you don't have to. Because every voice that says go back down into the same pits, they're all silenced. They all shut up for a second. So now go, don't, don't, you don't even have to go back there. Go sin no more. Finally, you are free to be new. Finally, you are free to be who you were created to be. Explore who you are in me. All right, you and I. Some of us, there have been people who are invested in us staying where we are. Amen. That's true. Amen. There are individuals and there are systems invested in us staying in our place, being boxed and put where we are. Their definitions given us. We've added our amen or enough other voices have added their amen that we don't have the courage to believe that we are actually, not theoretically, but actually free to be new, free to be who we are created to be. We take a step in that direction and somebody slams a door because they are invested in us staying stuck, and then we learn to just stop going there. We learn to just stop trying the door because it hurts. I pray for courage then, my friends. Because if I know something's true, I know that this freedom to be who you were called to be is for you. It's for us. And if we go through this series on freedom and we believe that the chains of sin are broken for us, but we just sit in the same place, then what is freedom for? That is not being salt and light. Remember, salt and light, that's an invitation. Go be that. Go be who you were created to be. Now we have to be honest on the other side. There are some of us who... It, either on purpose or accidentally have benefited from systems that kept each other in boxes. And some of us walk in and we're like, you know what? I just realized I put locks on you. And we've got to do the work of repenting. I have benefited from systems that held other people down. I've taken steps forward on the backs of my brothers and my sisters. And watch as close as you want, but I will spend my days trying to help people out of that. I will spend my days helping people discover who they were created to be, and I will leverage whatever power and authority I have to help folks do that. But this is our work, church. 
we're free to be new. And we're empowered with the Holy Spirit, which there's not a greater power. And all those voices you remember, I promise you, I've got voices in my head. I promise you, each voice is attached to a name, to a memory. I've got folders upon folders. But those voices don't have the power to condemn me. And I might still be working out the work of forgetting the voices and remembering his voice ahead of them. And I still limp because of the voices. I promise you, this week, I limped because of the voices. But I'll walk towards freedom. And this church will walk towards freedom. And when we get to 1212, we'll inherit new brothers and sisters and we will walk them towards freedom. Because this is what Jesus lived, died, and rose again for. So we're not going to play small. You're free to discover who you are. The newness of who you are and the offensive grace of my Jesus. I hope and pray some of you have something to pray about. I don't know. But there's people who are going to stand up around the room, would love to pray with you. But I'm telling you, this week as I sat in this, I was like, this is everything for me right now. That my Jesus stands up like that. That my Jesus silences people and he cuts us free. And if you're somebody who needs to declare that for the first time or needs to feel that again or whatever it looks like, I encourage you as an act of worship, go to one of our ministers around the room and pray with them that we may never feel bound again. If the sun set you free, and you're free indeed. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you for your boldness for that woman. I wish we knew her name, but somehow I believe you did even in that moment. But I thank you for the way that you stand up for us in this room, that there's no voice that can condemn us except yours. And why would you do that? You didn't come to condemn the world. Holy Spirit, reign freedom on this room. Give us the courage to step into the freedom you have for us. In your name, amen.